Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 4. This is Reformation Sunday. We're taking a break from our studies in Judges. I'm sure you're disappointed. <clears throat> Romans chapter 4. Let's hear the Word of God. I'm going to start at verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised and also, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he had believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, 
since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. On this Reformation Sunday, we remember the figure of Martin Luther, the great reformer. Luther is a colorful character, uh, and there are many stories that one could tell about Luther that are just uh, simply hilarious. Many of, the, many of them, I'm afraid, are toilet humor. Uh, he was known to have once prayed and been in the course of praying, was conscious that the devil was nearby, and... Uh, He said to the devil, whatever ascends, that is his prayer, whatever ascends is for God. Whatever descends, toilet humor, is for you. He said to the devil, uh, if I made a joke like that, I'd get into trouble. But he can get off with it because he's in heaven a long time. Anyway, so Martin Luther is remembered also for his expositions of great sections of the Bible. He was going through a period of trial and doubt as a monk and a minister in the church. Uh, he had entered the monastery. He'd had a, uh, a guilty conscience. He'd stra- striven for many years to, to feel that his sins were forgiven. He had a, an experience out on the field one day. He's traveling from Isleburn to somewhere else and and there was a lightning storm. A tree came down nearby. He thought he was going to die. And he called out to St. Anne to help and uh, promised that if he was spared, he would become a monk. And so he became a monk. And in the, in the monastery where he was praying and living, he discovered that the doubts and the fears and the temptations and the assaults of the evil one were just as strong in the monast- between the monastery walls as they were outside in the world. That wherever he went, whether it was in the service of God, having regular uh, worship times with God there in the community of the faithful in the, in the monastery, he, he could not get away from that which was frightening him out in the world before he came into the monastery. doesn't matter where you go, in the sense your conscience goes with you. And if your conscience is clear, then the evil one who is the accuser of the brethren is always there to hurl at you his accusations. And Luther found that out. And he went to his superior within the, uh, the monastery, a man by the name of Schaupitz, and Schaupitz told him that he should start giving some lectures, lecture on the book of Psalms and the book of Romans and Galatians and so on. And so that's what he did. And it was in the course of studying the book of Romans that he had 
an enlightenment experience. You see, as you read the book of Romans very early on in chapter 1, you come across an expression there, the righteousness of God. And uh, let me read to you those words. They're right at the very beginning of the book of Romans in chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, quoting the language spoken about Abraham, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, as uh, Martin Luther read that, he felt there was an incongruity there in the text. There was this word gospel, which means good news, and there was this expression, the righteousness of God. As he read the Ten Commandments, he saw there what he thought was the account of what God takes to be righteousness, and he wasn't wrong. He read those Ten Commandments, and he understood that whether he had broken one or the other, actually in practice in his life, he had broken all of them because as he looked at Jesus, he didn't get Jesus giving him an easy time when it came to the law of God. Jesus enforces the law of God even more than it seems Moses does. It's Jesus who says that the act of murder is one thing, but the hatred that arises in the heart before the act of murder takes place is equally guilty of murder. That the act of adultery The physical act of adultery is one thing, but the lust that rises up in the heart and the mind before ever that takes place is considered by the law to be adultery in practice, whether it's been the imagination or it's been on your device or on your your computer screen or wherever it's come from, that it is of the same standing before the law of God as adultery is. And that this is the way Jesus wants us to look at the law of God. Not just trying to find out technically, did I not do that? Can I get off this with a technicality? Jesus says, if you even thought of it, you are guilty before God. The seriousness of the law of God. And he was overwhelmed by this. He started to analyze his motivations before God as he's overwhelmed with this realization that the law of God is a heavy weight upon us. The law is not the gospel. I want to tell that to some American evangelical preachers. The law is not good news. The law is not the gospel. The law kills us. The law humbles us before God. The Lord demonstrates to us that whether I feel I've sinned or not before the law of God, I am guilty before God. And that there is none that does righteous. No, not one, as the Scripture says. Luther comes across this. But he's struggling with this. In what possible way, what possible way can the righteousness of God be good news. It's bad news to the sinner. And as he read Romans and as he taught Romans, 
he suddenly comes to the realization that, in fact, the righteousness of God, which is bad news, is good news when it's associated with the work of Jesus Christ. Why did God become man? God became man so that as man, He might represent us in living a human life that doesn't fail, that doesn't fall, that doesn't sin. That his, that his obedience to the law of God in its every detail, both in the mind and the heart as well as in the action, his obedience to that law of God is credited to those who believe in him. That the penalty of the law, death, that he experiences, he experiences on our behalf, and thereby having experienced it as our sacrifice and as our substitute, it means that death for us simply becomes a physical way of relocating into the presence of God, and no longer is death for the believer the frightening thing that brings us into judgment before God but rather is the technical release of our spirit that we might fly into his immediate presence. That is what Jesus does. He puts us right with God. The gift of God's righteousness comes to us, and it comes to us by faith. It is revealed from faith, for faith, the righteous live by faith. And that was a great revelation to Martin Luther and uh, John Calvin, second-generation Reformed character in Geneva, said, justification by faith alone is the axis around which the entire Christian life revolves. Now, what do we mean by faith? Well, we don't just mean mental assent to something. Nor do we mean something that is a feeling, a feeling of confidence, perhaps. If uh, faith is a feeling, then what happens when your confidence wavers, when you start having some doubts? Uh, do 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 you feel immediately that you've lost your faith? Faith does not depend on feeling. Uh, Nor is faith self-deception. As Mark Twain famously said, faith is believing what you know ain't true. That's self-deception. So what is faith? Here the apostle spells it out for us in the chapter we've read and in the third chapter as well. He tells us, first of all, what is the opposite of faith? What is the opposite of faith? You go back to chapter 3, verse 21, you read this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. What is the opposite of faith? The opposite of faith is the view that you can put yourself right with God by your own self-effort, your own self-energy, by just trying harder, working more, trying to be better. Paul immediately says that this idea of self-effort 
contradicts God and God's gift to us. God God has said in chapter 3, he makes a lot of this point. He says that nobody should be able to stand before God and boast about the life they've lived, the things they've done, what they've achieved, because all boasting, he says, all boasting by creatures is excluded in the presence of God. All boasting. So when we stand in the presence of God, we stand undone. We stand without anything to plead of our own merit. We, we have no right to think that we are worthy of salvation, worthy of redemption, worthy of acceptance with God. We are never worthy. We stand with empty hands, and we stand only in Christ if we stand at all. So self-effort contradicts then the glory of God. It, it contradicts the grace of God. Paul talks about grace in this passage uh, a lot. He's, he's drawing down this uh, theme of the grace of God. We are justified by His grace as a gift, he says in chapter 3, verse 24. Justified by His grace as a gift. In chapter Four, he talks about the righteousness that is obtained, that obtains the promise is by faith, by faith. There are only two kinds of religion in the world. There's a religion of performance and a religion of grace. The religion of performance says, measure up, try harder, do better next time, The religion of grace says, here is the gift, the gift of righteousness, the gift whereby you stand in the presence of God as righteous as Jesus is, as holy as Jesus is, clothed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne of God. Well, what are the obstacles to faith? Well, let's look at this story of Abraham. Abraham is the quintessential believer. He is cast as that in the Bible, and he is cast as that for the whole world. That's why we, were, we saw in the reading the whole mention of circumcised and uncircumcision. Uh, the circumcised are the people descended from Abraham according to the flesh, the Jews, Israel, so on. The uncircumcised are Gentiles, non-Jews, most of us, I suppose. And uh, what Abraham teaches us is for both groups. It's for Jews and Gentiles. Abraham uh, describes by his own life the way in which both Jews and Gentiles are to come to know God. There isn't one salvation for one and a different one for the other. It's the same salvation, and it is delivered in the same way. Now, what did God promise Abraham? God promised Abraham that he would be, that he would have a successor, a son, a seed. He was talking to him about the Messiah. The Messiah was going to come a long way down the line, of course, but it had to start somewhere. It was going to start 
with an impossibility. An impossibility. Abraham was going to have a son, and through this one who was going to be born, the Messiah, Abraham and his people, his descendants, would inherit the earth. They would inherit the earth. Back in chapter 3, the promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would be heir of the world. And so once the Messiah comes, of course, that's the way Jesus speaks. That's how Paul describes him. All things are yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, that is, those who are not into themselves, those who have lost themselves and have given themselves over to God. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So here's a man found and he's caught up in with these staggering possibilities that are held out to him. He's going to have a seed. The Messiah will come from that seed and all the nations of the world will be blessed through him. But then there are these hopeless circumstances. We saw this referred to there in chapter 4. There was Abraham's body. He was he was a hundred years old and as good as dead. Well, he might have lived quite a few decades after a hundred, but by the time you get to hundred, you're as good as dead. And uh, especially in certain areas, you're absolutely useless. You've lost it. You've passed it. Sarah, his wife, was 90 years old. She, her womb was barren. She never had a baby and no possibility of that happening, and, and they had been married all these years and not had a child together. And Abraham knew when God promised him he was going to have a seed, and the Messiah would come from that, and all nations of the world would be blessed. He knew right from the very get-go that if that was going to take place, something supernatural and miraculous had to happen. Something that would be inconceivable to people. If it's, that's, the, that's not the right word to use, I suppose. But literally inconceivable. Had to happen. Well, you know, sometimes you can believe, you can believe the promise of God, and, and you might be tempted to want to help God along with something. He believed the promise. That he believed the nations were going to come to know God through this line that was going to be established. He couldn't see how it could happen with Sarah, and Sarah said to him, well, look, if, if we're going to help God along here, I've got this slave girl who works for me, Hagar. She could have a baby, and we can take it as ours, and that can be the one. And so he had a little thing there, a little moment there. The Bible's very clear. He didn't lose his faith in the promise, but he thought he could help God out and so he did that. And of course, Ishmael was born. And that started a whole story of tension and warfare. And it's going on to this very day between both branches of his successors. It's very possible sometimes that you want to kind of throw in a little bit of work along with faith. That you want to kind of keep a religion that, in, that favors both. Yes, faith. Oh, yes, faith. I need to believe in Jesus. But 
I can also need some works added into the mix, like you're making a cake or something. Well, Paul explains. In verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. And in the process of thinking about that, he began to think as if he had already read the Apostles' Creed that we just read together this morning. He began to think about the resurrection of the dead. God had to do something that was impossible if his promise was ever going to be fulfilled. And he reckoned that God can do what humans cannot do. God can bring life out of death just as God called being out of non-being, existence out of no existence back at creation. You see, the supernatural birth of Isaac is a picture of how God creates children of promise. You and me, we, we turn up, as it were, at church dead in our trespasses and sins. And God gives you the grace of faith to believe the word that is preached in church, and you believe it, and you embrace it, you receive it. And you come alive spiritually. You're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. You're alive to God. That's the miracle of the new birth. You're brought out of death to life, as it were, spiritually. So these are the great obstacles that faith overcomes by the grace of God. Now notice the object, thirdly, the object of faith. We're told in verse 17, Abraham believed God. God was the object of his faith. Now, you can believe things, and uh, no amount of faith that you have drummed up within yourself will get you uh, the result you seek. So, for example, tomorrow morning I may get into my car and believe it will work just the way it did this morning. But supposing someone during the night has removed the bolts from the front wheels, I get into my car, I drive off, and the wheels fall off, and I get killed by faith. Faith in itself is nothing. It's the object of faith that is all important. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones defined faith as believing God. And that's precisely what we're told here. Abraham believed God. He believed God's promises. One of the most important things we learn about God in the Bible is that He is faithful. He keeps His Word. Faith begins when we are persuaded of the integrity of God to keep His promise. And that's how Abraham believed. We're told that in verse 20. No unbelief ever made him waver concerning the promise of God. He grew strong in faith, being fully convinced that God was able to do 
what he had promised. He's a powerful God. He could give life to the dead. He calls things that are as though they were, things that are not as though they were, and they come into existence. You read Genesis 1. God says, let there be, and there was. Let there be, there was. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. He does the same later on when his son Isaac, once the son is born, Isaac, God threatens Isaac's life. And uh, he tells Abraham to bring Isaac, his son, his only son, the son he loves, rubbing it in a little bit over and over again, and offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham takes his son, Isaac, whom he loved, and walks into the desert. Three days they go into the desert, and they go up to the mountain, and they prepare the altar. And and Isaac, who's by this time a a young man, uh, is asking his dad, where is the sacrifice? And of course, he then tells Isaac, I'm going to bind you and put you on here, but listen, God will provide a lamb, my son. So Isaac believes God too. Uh, he's on the altar, all tied up. There's Abraham with his knife. But there's, there are two significant things here to remember when you read that story. Number one, Abraham has just told the people they came with that have the donkeys and the baggage, you stay here, and after three days, we will come back to you. And now he's saying to Isaac, God will provide the lamb, my son. Now take the Apostles' Creed that we said this morning. There it all is. There is God at work, even in Abraham's thinking, in his experience, showing him Jesus, who is to come, who is the one who will be the lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And after three days, return from death and show himself to his people. The whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is about how God justifies the ungodly who believe in Jesus Christ. Abraham believed God. And that faith that he exercised was faith in the bare word of God. Not the word of God plus other proofs, just the bare word of God. Faith is content with the bare word of God because God is God. Well, in verse 19, tells us that Abraham faced those facts. There was no wishful thinking. He looked at the facts. He hoped against hope. He did not weaken in faith. He was not discouraged by natural weakness or external circumstances. He did not vacillate in doubt. He gave glory to God. And God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. Now, God's made a promise to you. He's promised to you that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You'll be raised from the dead on the last day. If you die, 
you will immediately be with him. He's made that promise to you. You may think, well, you know, death is a long way away from from me. Well, we all thought that. Faith is the thing that saves because of its connection to the right object. Let me read from the Confession of Faith. The principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone to have a right standing with God, to be justified, to have eternal life. Faith can be weak or strong, it says. It may often be assailed and weakened, but God will always give it the victory. So I'm not asking you how big your faith is or how well you're holding on to Christ. I'm asking only, are you holding on to Christ? Is He your Savior? God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. This is a gift of grace. It's not a quid pro quo. It's not a a wage. You're not earning a wage by your obedience or by your good life. And this is your payment You come with nothing in your hands. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. It's the heart of the gospel. It's really good news. The law will slay you. Once you've come to trust in Christ, you can go back to the law and see it in a fresh way. As the way of love. Love towards God and love towards other people. But don't trust in the law to save you. Because all the law can do is show how far short, how far short you've come from the glory of God. But Christ, Christ in all his majesty, Christ lifted up on the cross, Christ, our glorified Savior, Christ saves you. Take a look at him. Take a look at him and trust him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, today uh, help those who struggle with faith and works, those who wrestle with knowing you. We pray that you'd even give them the faith to ask you for you to show yourself to them. And for all of us, Lord, who claim to be Christian, help us to rest on him whom we've received, Christ alone, for our salvation. And in that great place of safety, to resist the evil one, to resist our own sinful nature, and to rest wholly on him, we pray in his strong name. Amen.